Well, last week we saw how, as we concluded Romans chapter number one, uh, one of the fruits, uh, one of many of the fruits of idolatry in a godless society is sexual immorality. And we saw how that was contrary to God's design for human flourishing. But before we move into Romans chapter number two, I thought it'd be helpful for us to, to take a week and to look at what is God's design for human sexuality. Uh, our world is obsessed with sex. If something can be sexualized, it usually is. And as Christians, we tend to respond in either one of two ways. Uh, we either also become obsessed with it, or we become obsessed with not being obsessed with it. And my goal this morning is to avo avoid both of these extremes and to dispel a lot of harmful myths that exist about the topic. Uh, we're going to look at quite a few scriptures this morning, uh, but I want to start by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse number 8. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there this morning. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback one on one of the chairs next to you. Feel free to use one of those. Philippians uh, chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 11, we will read down through chapter 4, verse number 8. The Apostle Paul told the church at Thessalonica, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask... And encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you're doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told you and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that it would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. And I know that this is a sensitive topic that we'll be looking at this morning, but Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are open to receive your word and that it would give us life and strength this morning. I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we could be righteous trees planted by flowing streams bearing fruit to bring you glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Pursuing sexual purity is just simply one aspect of our sanctification. Now I know at first that may sound obvious, but we often tend to put sexuality into a category of its own and it either becomes such a big part of our lives that it begins to define us or we don't take it seriously and we avoid it and we give it zero thought, which allows sin room to flourish. Now, the reason I want to start with this particular passage and the reason I'm bringing out that sexual purity or holy sexuality is just one aspect of our sanctification 
is because we tend to only look at the bad or focus on uh, what to avoid. And as a result, it becomes this taboo subject that we just try to delicately avoid. But if we only focus on the outward or if we only focus on what we should avoid, we actually miss a vitally important truth. And that truth is that the Holy Spirit is first dedicated to our inward transformation. Any biblical treatment of this subject must go deeper than just outward application or here's what you need to avoid or not look at. And in order to rightly understand God's design, we need to go back to the very first sentence of the Bible. The very first sentence of the Bible, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, in his book, The Mingling of Souls, Matt Chandler says, that simple yet profound sentence, Genesis 1-1, gives us the authoritative lens through which we see the world. The universe that you and I inhibit was created and ordered and is sovereignly governed by a good creator God. One of the implications, he says, of this truth is that there is now wisdom woven into the very fabric of life that if submitted to, makes life to the full possible. So this morning, let's back up and look at creation. When God made the world, he made Adam. God made every part of Adam. He made every part of Adam's body. God gave Adam his testosterone. God gave Adam his drive. And God said that it was good. But God said that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. So he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And he created a woman to help him fulfill his God-given role. To compliment him as they both pursued God's will for them. God created Eve. And just like God made everything about Adam, God made everything about Eve. Her body was not the devil's idea, it was God's. And God said that it was good. No part of Eve was an accident or a result of sin because sin was not yet in the picture. Then Adam woke up and he saw Eve. And the first thing he did was he started speaking poetry. Look at Genesis 2, 23. Adam wakes up, the Bible says, and the man said, this is a poem. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Then what happened? We'll look at verses 24 and 25. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife, that's important, his wife, were naked yet felt no shame. See, in God's original design in the Garden of Eden, there was nothing to fear. There was nothing to hide. There was no shame. There was openness and vulnerability and complete transparency because there was no shame. There was no sin. It was just a celebration of the good gift that God had given this married couple. Now, when Adam declared that Eve was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, he was declaring their oneness. He woke up and realized, finally, there is somebody like me who compliments me, who God made for me. He is declaring their oneness, but he's also declaring his commitment to her. He saw his wife, and he naturally, his instinct was to commit to her. This was a foreshadowing of what Paul would later say in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, verses 28 and 29 Paul says, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides for it and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. I mean, we guys, we like Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? I mean, Adam had a sweet gig. He got to work outside, he got to rule over God's creation, and he had the perfect wife to help him fulfill his God-given role. And God says, hey, enjoy each other and make lots of babies. 
But what we can miss is that when Adam first sees Eve, he isn't simply spitting out poetry so that he could be with his wife. He was committing to her. He recognized that God had made them for each other. That's why he said, at last, this is what is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And Adam says that because of that, we are now one. And as we saw in Ephesians, that oneness, that togetherness, that unity assumes care. It assumes commitment. It assumes I'm going to sacrifice the way Christ would ultimately sacrifice for the church. There was an intrinsic commitment built into their union, and Eve felt safe because of this commitment and this oneness. This shows us that sex is so much more than just a physical act. It's two souls becoming one. In God's design, it's meant to be a physical expression of love and intimacy, while at the same time nurturing love and intimacy. One writer said God's plan is for a man and a woman in the bond of marriage, in the bond of the marriage covenant, to have their souls, not just their bodies, become one. This is a good gift that God has given to husbands and wives in marriage. God told Adam and Eve to enjoy, enjoy each other. He said in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. Sex is God's design for a husband and wife to have, deep, to have a deeper intimacy with each other than they could with anyone else. And the natural desire that most people have for it finds its fulfillment in a safe and committed, loving marriage. Now I bring this up because it's important to realize that God intentionally made sex as a part of his creation. What we see happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter number 2 brings glory to God and joy to his creation. Sexual expression isn't all dirty or bad. Now, all that being said, we have to be careful with all of God's good gifts not to idolize them. Sex is a good gift for marriage, but it is not the foundation of a good marriage. Jesus is. It's God's gift that he has given to a husband and wife to enjoy within the bounds of marriage. But as we see in Genesis chapter number 3, sin enters into the picture. And one of the first things that were affected was the relationship between Adam and Eve. When they both partake of their fruit, they instantly knew that they were naked and shame filled their hearts as a result. The gifts of intimacy and openness and vulnerability that Adam and Eve enjoyed were affected by sin and as a result, shame, hiding, and self-preservation now filled their relationship, their relationship with each other and with God. The commitment was shattered when Adam passively stood by and let Eve be deceived and instead of exercising dominion over creation as he had been called to do, creation took advantage of man. And because of this, the marriage relationship now has baggage that taints everything. Another result of Adam's fall is that all of humanity now tries to pursue God's good gifts outside the bounds of God's glory and righteousness. The natural longing for intimacy now gets perverted and downgraded. Instead of following God's good plan, we try to create our own rules so that our sinful desires can find temporary satisfaction. Like we saw last week in Romans 1, we degrade ourselves and each other because we make everything about ourselves. We elevate our desires to the point that they become our identity. In his book, Holy Sexuality, author Christopher Ewan argues that terms like heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual are the wrong framework for Christians to use when it comes to biblical sexuality. 
He says, holy sexuality consists of two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And he says, chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment. And what we in society have done is we have simultaneously elevated our desires to the point of identity while downgrading sex to a simple physical activity so that we can rationalize getting what we want outside of God's good boundaries. And this is exactly what we saw at the end of Romans 1 last week. And as we have seen throughout society, this is damaging because God designed sex to be so much more than just a physical act. It's the union of souls. It's two becoming one. In an article in the Washington Post called Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sex Ethic, writer Christine Emba says, even when all goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other and our deepest values. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, she says, it's clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Now, this is not a Christian article by any stretch. But it's interesting to me that the world is starting to realize that it needs a better sex ethic. Because there's more going on than just a physical activity. In our fallen state, love has been cheapened, so it's no wonder that making love has become cheap. Holy sexuality is simply keeping sexual activity within the good boundaries that God has set. And what, I, what we're going to see throughout this message is that even a lot of what happens within a marriage can be outside of God's bounds. We'll also see that the pathway to holy sexuality is the same as any other part of our sanctification. So if we're struggling with this, we're not without hope. Let's go back to our initial passage to begin seeing this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Now the phrase sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure out what words we get from that Greek word. It's where we get the word pornography. It mainly means fornication. That is, two people touching each other and sleeping together in a way God designed only for a man and a woman who are married to each other in a committed, loving, sacrificial union. God said this close physical relationship is for married people only. We saw that in Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, with his wife, and they become one flesh. Hebrews 13.4 gives us a stronger warning about this that says, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. So sexual immorality includes sexual activity before marriage and wrong sexual relations among married people. But in 1 Thessalonians, sleeping with someone you're not married to is not the only sexual sin in view here. In verses 4 and 5, we see that Paul says that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions. So the issue here is not just behavior, but also sexual desires that can dominate a person's life in ways that they should not. This would include desires that lead to the use of pornography, sexual fantasies, and masturbation that's so often embedded with it. If we find ourselves consuming pornography or sexually suggestive content, we are stepping outside the boundaries that God has set. Verse 6 drives this point home even further. Verse 6 says, 
This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. I love how he says a brother or sister. He's helping us understand that, hey, we are God's children. And so there is intrinsic value. There is intrinsic dignity that goes along with that. We must not take advantage against, of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told you and warned you. Pornography and other sexually suggestive content are not biblically consensual because it is not within the bounds of marriage. It is not a loving, committed, sacrificial relationship. You and the person on the other side of that screen did not make vows to be faithful to each other before God. You are using them for your own sexual gratification. And that can even happen in a marriage. Not only is this sinning against God, but it's also a sin against another image bearer of God. It's a sin against the dignity that God has given every human being. It turns people into products. We saw last week, that's what it means when they degraded themselves among themselves. It turns people into products and it uses them for their own gratification. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Women do not exist for the pleasure of men. Men do not exist for the pleasure of women. This is why Paul told the church at Thessalonica, we need to know how to control our own bodies. A person's sexual holiness is not dependent on another person's behavior or dress, but on their own relationship with God. There are some quote-unquote Christian circles that say a wife has to look a certain way or act a certain way or dress a certain way so that her husband will stay faithful. Let me be clear, that is outside of God's design. A husband's purity is not his wife's responsibility. A man's purity is his responsibility and no one else's. In fact, God frees women from being burdened by any worldly idea of beauty. If you read 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6, women are told that the inward beauty of holiness and gentleness and a quiet spirit is really of what's, what's of great worth. He tells them, don't get caught up in all these worldly ideas of beauty. God frees women from having to conform to some warped image of beauty that is driven by lust. Men do not put it back on them. You may say, but doesn't 1 Corinthians 7, 4 say that a wife doesn't have authority over her own body and not to deprive her husband? Yes, but within the bounds God has set. That verse in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 4, does not justify any type of abuse. It does not justify any type of manipulation. It also says that a husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that a husband and a wife are equally, they equally and exclusively belong to each other so that they can enjoy meeting each other's needs. And that works when both the husband and the wife are living out God's plan by loving each other and sacrificing each other for each other. And not, not sacrificing each other, sacrificing for each other and respecting each other. That could go bad real quick. This only, 1 Corinthians 7 works when you're living out what we see in Ephesians 5 as God's plan for a marriage. When there's mutual submission and sacrifice and respect and honor and love and the love Christ has for us is not only the model, but it is the driving force for the way we treat each other. As a husband, you should treasure meeting the sexual needs of your wife. 
This isn't a drudgery, it's a delight. I mean, think about it. We get to spend the rest of our lives learning how to please our wives, and this involves so much more than just sex. That's all-encompassing. One of the best pieces of marriage advice I ever got was, Nick, always be a student of your spouse. I mean, you're always learning her. You're always studying her. This is why uh, Peter says to know your wife. That means so much more than just knowing how to please her sexually. It also means if a wife's need is to not have sex, the husband will meet that need and not have sex. It's not a blanket excuse for a husband to always tell his wife, you're not allowed to say no. So just because something happens within a marriage does not mean it is part of God's good designer plan. Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians.